0: Morning brothers and sisters. We are going to read scripture together. So I'm going to ask you to take out your copy of God's word this morning and turn to Mark chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 32 to 52. Mark 10 32 to 52. Give you a chance to find that. And then let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Mark 10 32 to 52. And they, that's Jesus and the disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happening to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Let's think of that for a second. Wow. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on, at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated.
1: Our God is God, and besides Him, there is no other. With honor to the Father, the Son and to the Spirit of God. And with thanks toward Pastor Gerald in his absence, we'd love to see him in his perch up there, but circumstances are such that he cannot be with us. and to all the elders and to all of you, Good morning. It's good to be among the saints of God again in the land of the living. Thankful to have this opportunity to serve all of you. Um, Again, we do need to keep Pastor Gerald and his family um, in prayer, as well as, as Christy said, others who have been uh, affected negatively by this virus. Let us take a moment here to pray Then let us look at God's word together. Father, we bless the magnificent name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. And we give you thanks for your kindnesses to us all throughout the pandemic. May your hand of love and mercy and grace be upon Pastor Gerald and his family and all others that have contracted the virus, may your mercy reign. May you restore him and his family and others to us quickly. We remember those, God, who are most intimately affected by the events of 9-11 20 years ago and ask that your comfort would be great among them, that they would find their hope in Christ and Christ alone that those who are still suffering burns and wounds, those who have someone missing from the table, those who love someone who gave the ultimate sacrifice in the war that followed, would you please strengthen them and point them to the cross and the hope of the empty tomb? Bless the women's ministry we launch. Thank you for Christy. Give her great strength and grace and insight and discernment and wisdom and favor among us. Blessed that every home represented by the women here will be filled up and strengthened because of the ministry you will use her to lead. Now, God, be with us as we hear your word to bless us, to know your voice, and to follow you in obedience, and to enjoy your grace all the more. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we give you thanks. In your name we pray, amen. The 20th anniversary of 9-11 is a stark reminder of the thirst for power going to the extreme. To bring down from superpower status, one Western nation, a group of terrorists will take the lives of 3,000 others without regard for anything but a statement they hope will mean a change in world order. The desire for power and control need not take the form of planes flying into towers for us to see the inherent dangers of such longings. They are evident in a team doctor abusing young, vulnerable gymnast. And in all sides of COVID-19 mask mandate debates that devolve into shouting matches or physical assault. Often, what we deem as office politics is a euphemistic way to speak of the problems of advancement to positions of greater influence and authority. We feel this acutely when the newer boss rises from a rank below ours or comes with less qualifications, experience, and skill than what is in our own portfolio. Maybe even closer to home is the cycle of an overbearing, inflexible, close-minded parent being the offspring of a similar parent or set of parents, never learning to consider that he or she might be unreasonable or wrong sometimes, because to do so would seem like one is losing the control afforded to parents. It is an unfortunate thing where our understanding of the kingdom of God gets muddled by thoughts of having power over others. It is at this point that we have grabbed the chief message of the world and allowed it to co-op and substitute for the gospel. As they approach Jerusalem to see their Messiah established as king, the disciples' thoughts lead to posturing for power gone to the extreme. They can think only of being in authority, even with Jesus right there in their midst. Yet, as we will see, James and John's request for seating next to Jesus in positions of power in the kingdom above their fellow disciples provides opportunity for Jesus to teach what kingdom seating is really about. That is what power in the kingdom of God, power in the church and power for believers really means for our daily mission and our happiness in the world. First, Kingdom seating is about suffering for the gospel. James and John make an audacious two-part request. As audacious as any request comes, as you can see when Chris was reading it and he paused for us to reflect on what they were asking in their request. In the first part, James and John make a blank check request for Jesus to do whatever they ask. Jesus could fulfill any holy, righteous, and wise request. So this request really is scary, coming from the mouths of two brothers who were willing to call down lightning strikes on the disobedient. Their request reverses the teacher-pupil relationship by asking Jesus to serve them They are placing him under them. Jesus willingly entertains their request with, what would you have me to do for you? Part two of their request comes. They want seats one and two next to Jesus when he sits enthroned in his kingdom. Effectively, they are asking to be above all of the other disciples, including Peter. Their request does show that prior to the crucifixion, the disciples understood Jesus to be their Messiah and King, especially since they speak of him coming into his glory. The glory that Jesus mentioned belonging to the Father back in Mark 838. Yet, in their request, self-interest is masked by worship and discipleship, says New Testament scholar James Edwards. In answering their request, Jesus intends for Zebedee's sons to be certain that they know what they are really asking. They are asking for Jesus' cup, and for Jesus' baptism. The cup and baptism point to Jesus' forthcoming death, foretold in his three passion predictions in Mark 8:31 and Mark 9:31 again, and just before this passage in Mark 10:33 to 34. Cup has an old testament background. It refers to the punishment of God's wrath upon. Sinful Israel, as we see in a place like Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Or again, in Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk it to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jesus is looking forward to the time when he will take the wrath of God on behalf of Israel and the nations when he will drink the cup of God's wrath. Baptism, when used as an image of terror, also draws from Old Testament images of being overwhelmed by a flood like in Isaiah, 53, or Isaiah 43, 2, which is a favorite verse of many of us. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. As baptism is a concept that is parallel to the idea of the cup of which Jesus speaks in his reply to the brothers, Baptism also speaks of the overwhelming nature of God's wrath. Jesus' three predictions of his suffering and death told the disciples that this cup and this baptism would begin in the hands of the rulers of Israel and in the hands of the people of the nations. Unknown still to the disciples, however, that wrath would culminate in the hands of God the Father who would be pleased to bruise the Son. The path to the kingdom and all of his power comes only through the cross For Jesus, it comes only through the cup and only through the baptism. Jesus took God's wrath down to the very dregs of the cup for us. Jesus was fully submerged in the wrath of God for all of us. Continuing in their bold vein, James and John affirm that they can take the cup and the baptism Jesus will take if it means that they will still get the power chairs on any side of Jesus. It's as if they hear what Jesus says and says, oh yeah, we can take the cup and baptism as long as we can have those two seats. Jesus affirms they will indeed drink his cup and they will be baptized with his baptism. So you have to wonder at this point to yourself how James and John miss the significance of what Jesus is saying to them. They have been watching healings, casting out of demons, stoppage of winds and waves, and feeding of thousands for three years. Just prior to their request, for the third time, Jesus predicts his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. Here it is again in Mark 10, 32 through 34. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and... And now Jesus will tell them eight things that are going to happen in Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will arise. Of those eight things that await him, only the last one points to power, and after three days he will rise because he will have defeated death in power. Seemingly, James and John invest that last clause, the rising after three days, with the crushing of their oppressors, the fulfillment of the covenant promises to Israel, and the crowning of their Messiah King. It's as if Jesus says to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and then James and John give him like the sponge blob, blah, 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 until he says, after three days, we, I will rise. Those other seven items are not to be blah, blah, blahed away. Those other items are the cup and the baptism. Yet, after three years of being with Jesus, hearing him teach on land and sea, and watching his workings up close in response to this third iteration of the coming death of the one they identify as their messiah and king. James and John asked for personal exaltation to places of authority. How did they miss the point of this trip to Jerusalem? Reviewing this passage again made me wonder how often I, failed to appropriate the significance of Jesus' mission to my life, even after walking with Jesus far more than three years. The Son of Man was delivered over to wicked people for me. They condemned him to death for my sins, not because he did any sins. He was mocked and spat upon, flogged, and killed for my forgiveness. My entire life is about the cup and the baptism of Jesus. My parenting, my leisurely pursuits, because I can't just turn off the cup and the baptism for which he came because I'm biking on the pra- prairie path and, and then grab the cup and baptism back when I'm done with it. My my marriage to Pam, my relationship with all of my children and my parents and my mother-in-law, my work, not simply because I'm in ministry, but because Jesus is Lord over my employer and over all the other employees and the employment and the product and the wages and every bit of my fellowship with all of you and my witness to the world are all about the cup and the baptism. They're all about this cup of wrath. They're all about Jesus being submerged in this wrath. Jesus came to drink a bitter cup for us in our place and on our behalf because of our sin. He drank the cup that underwent the fullness of the wrath of God so that his followers would take up cups and the waters of suffering for his great name's sake. Most of us did not sign up for the suffering when we signed on for the Christian life. Well, we actually did. We just didn't volunteer to sign up for the suffering that comes along with the Christian life. We signed on for victory and success. Akin to James and John, in effect, we have blood the cup, and the baptism to hear only the part about the rising from the dead. Then, unfortunately for some, when life does not churn out total victory in all things and we get used and mistreated without any earthly recourse for help as we try to live this life for Jesus, we then want to leave the faith because it seems that Jesus has failed us. Jesus has not failed us. We just need to remember the cup and the baptism. Kingdom seating is about the sovereignty of God. Jesus notes the different authority between himself and the Father. The passive it is for those for whom it has been prepared points back to the divine decree. Historically, we have understood this passage and also Jesus' lack of knowing the time of his own return to be expressions of Jesus' voluntary submission to the Father in humility in order to fulfill both of their roles in the plan of redemption. The Father... Has already prepared the seats for certain individuals. Those seats could be for Enoch and Elijah, or for Abraham and Joseph, for Moses and Zipporah, or Jethro and Balaam, or Boaz and Ruth, Naomi and Nehemiah, or for Melchizedek and that obscure man in the field who pointed Joseph in the right direction of his brothers. They could be for Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Baruch, or Hosea. They could be for Elizabeth and the highly favored Mary, or for Anna, who gave her widowed life to service in the temple, and Simeon, who faithfully awaited the consolation of Israel. They could be for... Junia and Phoebe, John and Paul, James and Peter, or my favorite two candidates, Titus and Phineas. We have no idea for whom the Father already has prepared those seats of power next to the King. Neither Do we now know anyone in the world, the kingdom, or in a local body to whom God will give places of authority over us? We do know, however, that the Lord appoints whom he will to be in any authority just as he has appointed final authority in those two seats in the Messiah's kingdom. Because the Father has decreed those two seats, Jesus cannot play favorites in giving them or wrongly judge who should receive them. He can't say, well, I think I actually like Thomas better than John, so I'm going to give him one of those seats. And, you know, I know Peter's out front now, but I really like Judas, the other Judas, not that Judas. I really like Judas better than I like the other one. So I'm going to give that other seat to him. Jesus' is service is free from corruption related to giving seats in his government. Likewise, our service is free from corruption related to gaining seats in Jesus' kingdom since we cannot affect the decree of God. We can only be faithful. What Jesus tells James and John is that exaltation to places of power in the kingdom of Christ is in the hands of a sovereign God, a God who is free to do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, and always doing it with good. This should be freeing to us. We love having a God so sovereign that he can make your boss miss a meeting on the day you are least prepared to present because your boss rode that late commuter train on that day. We love having a God that sovereign. Thank you for making the boss late. We love having a God so sovereign that a legal case that does not look like it's going to be in our favor suddenly becomes a win for us. That same God is so sovereign that from all eternity he has already decided who sits in the two chairs and who will be in authority anywhere and there is nothing that we can do to change that. Knowing the Lord is sovereign over exaltation to power can be comforting. There is no need for us to fight to be in charge or to seek personal exaltation. Now, combining God's sovereignty with what he has already said about the cup and the baptism should help pull us into much greater meekness, humility, and gentleness when it comes to confrontations over ruling, decision-making authority, direction in an organization and the influence of our or another interest group's interest in an organization. In my other occupational role in the kingdom, sometimes I sit in meetings and purposely observe power dynamics. Now, in saying that, I am admitting that I'm guilty of giving the meeting leaders the blah, blah, blah while I do this. I do try to turn it off, but as pastors Gerald and Johnny and probably the entire ministry staff could tell you, about two seconds after the meeting opens in prayer, I have checked out of the meeting mentally. I'm just, you know, kinda, I'm there and I'm I'm not there. I'm trying, but I'm usually not there. Now this makes it especially hard when I'm supposed to be leading the meetings, but that's another story for another time. So what I do at those times, I allow my inner Siri to keep listening so that I can pipe in with full consciousness when I need to reply or ask a question or interject. So if Pastor Gerald says something to me inside quickly, I say, hey, Siri, quickly answer Gerald with something that makes sense. Okay, Eric, here you go. And out pops an answer, even though I've already checked out the meeting. Some of you just are not getting what I'm talking about here. I'm trying to admit something that as I'm observing power dynamics, just you can't really pay attention to the meeting and pay attention to power dynamics. So, as I'm observing, I just get turned off by the... Jockeying for power, I said in my other occupation, not here at Calvary Memorial. I just get turned off by the jockeying for power or forms of self-exaltation to the disregard or belittlement of others. I have been on the other end of that too much. I have doled it out too much in the past and I'm sure I'm guilty of it in some form now that I don't yet recognize. We don't see when we try not to lose or when we're always trying to win. We don't always see when we are trying to one-up that last person. We don't always see when we are fighting not to be left in obscurity. Or we don't see when we are attempting to exert our will on a group as if Our position or point of view is the gospel, the right way that something must be done. And if we're not doing it that way, we're all wrong. Some go as far as to justify insensitive or hurtful comments with caveats like, I just have to say this even if I won't be liked. Or sometimes, as you know, people rest on, Loyalty to an organization or length of stay in something in order to carry the exertion of their feudal rule over the serfs in the room. When we accept that God, is sovereign over all the direction and all the vision and all the prosperity and all the mission statements and all of the exaltations. We do not have to win or dominate or crush or demand or rudely trample over others. We don't have to pull out sarcasm, and use wittiness or superior knowledge to put others in their places while exalting ourselves and give that smile like, yeah, I'm smarter than you. We do not have to try to make our parents or adult children conform to our wishes. We can pray, and wait, and let the Lord do his thing. We can save the use of power for real things like standing against injustice in our spheres of influence and standing up for the voiceless and the innocent when people try to wrongly use power against them. Kingdom seating is about serving like our king. The indignant response of the disciples to James and John opens instructions on being great and being first. These are the real issues of desiring seats of exaltation. Jesus says in contrast to the indignant feelings of the disciples, but it shall not be so among you. You're not going to lord authority over people like the Gentiles. Looking at this verse, commentary writer Robert Stein says, the secular world may think that rulers should be good and fair, rather than evil and oppressive. But Christian leadership is far more radical. It does not involve being masters over others at all. Instead, it involves being their servant. Servant indicates someone who waits tables in service to one over him, menial service. Slave, Jesus says, You shall be servant, you shall be slave. Slave referred to someone bound and in compulsory service, totally dependent on his owner or master. Jesus makes servant and slave. The basic identity of anyone following him into the kingdom. He makes it our basic identity. As Pastor Tim Keller writes, if at the very heart of your worldview is a man dying for his enemies, then the way you're going to win influence in society is through service rather than power and control. And on this verse, David Garland writes, the other disciples become indignant at the brothers' audacity. They are not livid because James and John have been so insensitive to make such a request after Jesus bared his heart about suffering and death. They are angry. Because James and John beat them to the punch and may now have an edge over them for the power slots. Garland goes on to say, jealousy creates turmoil in the ranks. The disciples would rather bear a grudge than bear the cross. The basis for becoming great through service is the sacrificial ministry of Jesus himself. Jesus says, and this is the reason why you're going to be slave in service, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The one Mark identifies as God the Son from the opening verse of his gospel account indicates that he left his pre-existent state, to come as a man, not so that others could serve him. He came to serve people by giving his life as a ransom for many. Many is not fully inclusive like the term all. This seemingly points to the fact that not all in Israel will be saved, but only those for whom Christ died. The concept of ransom is connected to the idea of cost, substitution, and atonement. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 forms the most likely backdrop of ransom for many, of ransom for those for whom Christ has died. Listen to the words from Isaiah 53. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life to death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus gives the ultimate service to purchasing us. In fact, for Mark's readers, this is the real reason that Jesus has come at all. Why do we seek positions of slave and positions of servant rather than that of wielding all the power over other people because this is the very example the Son of Man set for us. The Son of Man did not come to be served. The very one who approaches the Ancient of Days, God the Father, in Daniel's vision, is the one who becomes slave and servant for our salvation. But his service will be unique in giving himself for others so that he can purchase us and make us his own. When we look into Jesus' face, we are looking at a mission that is the cross That is the tomb, the suffering, and the flogging, being spit upon, mocked, and falsely accused. We are looking at abandonment by his own, being traded for a murderer, being forsaken by his own father, and all the wrath, all while he cries out to forgive others. He was purchasing us to make us his own, canceling the power of sin against us. Jesus was showing that kingdom seating is about serving like our king. As he came to serve us in salvation, we are servant and slave to all. Lastly, kingdom seating is about opening spiritual sight to Christ. I love that Mark puts the story a blind Bartimaeus, right after Jesus has spoken about giving his life as a ransom to many. While the disciples are wrestling with the idea of what does it mean that he will be a ransom for many and that he did not come to be served, won't he be king? Won't he be Messiah? Won't he have servants all under him? What does it mean that he came to serve? And how is that related to us being servants and slaves? I thought he was going to take us away from being anyone's servant and slave. And while they are wrestling with this and trying to figure this out, they go along the road and they're going to pass. This blind Bartimaeus begging on the side of the road. Bartimaeus is the only named person healed in the gospel of Mark. Of all the healings in the gospel of Mark, the only one healed who is named is Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is the last healing in the Gospel of Mark. So Bartimaeus' healing is a very important point in the Gospel of Mark. This passage has huge significance in Mark's presentation of the mission of our Messiah. Even though Bartimaeus is blind, Bartimaeus is aware enough to know that when chatter begins about Jesus, the promised Davidic son is the one of whom they are speaking. The disciples haven't completely figured this out yet, but blind Bartimaeus can see what they cannot see. Here is his chance to get the long-promised ruler to provide him with the healing that he has heard that others have experienced. But the crowd will not have it. Lording their authority over Bartimaeus They attempt to get him to shut up and stop crying out to Jesus. And if you look at the verse, it's not one person saying, now don't do all that crying out there. Jesus doesn't want to talk to you. It's multiple people on multiple attempts saying, stop all that crying in there. You blind man, go back to your place over there on the side of the road. They are using their authority and power, and they think this is what Jesus wants. But... Bartimaeus will not have it. He keeps screaming out to the son of David to get Jesus' attention. He keeps on yelling out to the son of David. Then the crowd, because power is their issue and not service, have to turn where they think the power is now moving since Jesus tells Bartimaeus that he needs to come to him. And they say, oh, look, the teacher, he is beckoning after you. There is hope here for you. The crowd is forced to deal with the fact that Jesus ignores their attempts at lordship and he hears the humble cries of this marginalized beggar. When Jesus and Bartimaeus finally meet, notice that Jesus asked him the very same question he asked his disciples. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him the same question because Jesus did not come to get anything from this man. He came to give his life for this man so that Bartimaeus could be purchased the same way the disciples were purchased, the same way that we have been purchased. He came to serve this blind man so that his faith could save him the way faith saves us all who believe on Jesus, the one who came to serve. If we get kingdom seating right, if we get suffering for Jesus right, accepting his sovereign appointment of his rule right, if we get serving like he served right, if we get, Understanding the cup and the baptism right, and slave and servant right, we will see something greater than being in power and having seats next to Jesus. We will see blind people coming to meet Jesus, and we will see them being served so they can have their eyes open to Him. Let us pray, Father. Thank you for the son who has served us. Deliver me, Father, from every yet to be discerned attempt to lord my feeble authority over others. Do the same for all your people here who love you. Cause us to grow up into our roles as servants and slaves. Give us disposition far from the non-believing Gentiles. Cause us to find greatness in being like you. Thank you, Father, for sending the Son to be servant for us so that we can enjoy the kingdom. May you use us to point many others, blind as we were, to our King who has served all of us. In Jesus' name we pray.